You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. I'm very pleased today uh, to be organizing uh, an important event uh, the official Canadian launch of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's new report to make us slowly disappear, the Chinese government's assault on the Uyghurs. We're organizing this event in partnership with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide, who released this report in the United States in November 2021. And we're also partnering with the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and their, their uh, chair and co-founder will be joining us shortly. Um, for those of you who know, December 9th is a very important day. Today is the International Day of Commemoration and Dignity of the Victims of the Crime on Genocide and the Prevention of this Crime. So all around the world, organizations, universities, governments are marking this. And the issue of the Uyghurs and the persecution of the Uyghurs by the Chinese government is um, a hot-button issue in Canada. Uh, yesterday, the Canadian Parliament... Um, sorry, the Canadian government announced that they would be boycotting the Beijing Winter Olympics diplomatically, joining other countries in doing so. So I'd like to introduce our speakers today. Um, they will each make an opening comments, remarks. Um, we're first going to hear from Naomi Kohler, who is director of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Memorial Museum. She'll be talking about the report, what its findings are, what brought it about, and what policy prescriptions there are in that, and perhaps what Canada might want to look at to implement. We're also going to hear from Nursiman Abdurashid. Nursiman is a Uyghur. She's going to talk about her personal story and the plight of her family and what they're struggling through day to day. That will be followed by Erwin Kotler, former Minister of Justice of Canada, former Attorney General, and the current founder and chair of the Raw Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And last but not least, we'll be joined by Robert Fife, who's a well-respected journalist, the Globe and Mail, who's been doing some amazing reporting on the Canadian angle, the domestic political angle of a response to the persecution of the Uyghurs and Canadian foreign policy and domestic policy. With further ado, I would like to ask Naomi Kikoler. Um, Naomi, great to have you virtually joining in to Canada with us today. I'd like to give you the floor and ask you to talk about um, this important report and, and, and tell us more about it. Thank you so much, Kyle. And thank you so much to both MIGS and the Rural, Rural Wallenberg Center for partnering with us for this incredibly important discussion on what is unfortunately for far too many people a really painful day. I think it'd be fair to say that many of us wish that we did not have to have this conversation, but unfortunately, now as we approach, you know, 80 years after the Holocaust, we unfortunately still see the gap between rhetoric and promise when we talk about never again. And I just want to start just by recognizing Norseman and the incredible weight that's sadly on your shoulders um, to share the experience that you're you're going to share with us, and also start by just recognizing that uh, as we have this conversation. A Canadian remains in prison, missing in China, Hussein Salil. I just really hope that there continues to be focus on trying to secure his release. 
to just help frame the conversation and talk a little bit about why we as an institution are so concerned about this particular issue and what our, our aims are. One of our core aims is to try to help change the conversation. Our goal is to remind people that first and foremost, there needs to be at the fore of any China policy that a government, multilateral institution or corporate actor is developing and implementing. There has to be a centering of a recognition of the fact that China is a state perpetrating some of the worst crimes known to humankind. And that responding to genocide and crimes against humanity today requires a holistic approach, not just by governments, but non-state actors, including the corporate sector. All too often, these crimes are seen as being a periphery concern, one where we see action taken too little, too late, if at all, and usually only when images of mass killing are broadcast around the world, something that the Chinese, given their tactics, uh, we know we are not seeing today. Our aim as a center is to ensure that the prevention of these crimes are understood as core to national security policy and also to corporate interests. Essentially, we want to remind people that you can't build a foreign policy or business earnings literally off the backs of enslaved people and brutalized communities. We want people in positions of influence as well as the broader public to ask, what are they doing to make never again real? And today, especially, I wanna ask them, if this was 1936 and there were reports emerging of the persecution of Jews, what would you have done? Our report seeks through careful research and rigorous legal analysis of publicly available information to outline how the Chinese government's conduct has escalated beyond a policy of forced assimilation in recent years. This includes in particular, a deepening assault on weaker female reproductive capacity through forced sterilization and forced IUD placement, as well as the separation of sexes through mass detention and forcible transfer. We're gravely concerned that the Chinese government may be committing genocide against the Uyghurs and they're failing in their obligation to prevent this crime. Though we often think of genocide as perpetrated through mass killing as in the Holocaust, the Genocide Convention has a more expansive definition. And just to give you an example of one of the elements that concerns us or one of the points of evidence, in 2019 alone, at least over 186,000 fewer children were born in Xinjiang. Roughly 95% of those missing births are within the Uyghur community. One to three million Uyghurs have been detained, largely on an array of charges that one could equate with merely expressing their own cultural and religious identity. As we'll hear from nourishment, there's been torture, sexual violence, horrific attacks, purely based on their identity. The report that we released builds on our findings of crimes against humanity, and I'd encourage you to look at it. It quite extensively goes into the crimes that are being perpetrated from forced sterilization and sexual violence to forcible transfer of children and forced labor. And just to remind people of two important things when we talk about both genocide and crimes against humanity, including because there's been such a debate about what to call this. First of all, once you've determined that crimes have occurred, that means we're acting too little too late and prevention obligations have failed to be acted on. The second is also, we tend to undervalue the importance of crimes against humanity and that needs to be rectified. It's important to remember that even when we think about Nuremberg and the crimes that were pros prosecuted of the Holocaust, the majority were actually crimes against humanity, notably persecution. As an institution, we understand intimately that those who perpetrate the crimes wreak profound harm on the immediate victims and communities and set in motion trauma that can cascade down multiple generations. The Chinese government is seeking to eliminate the culture and soul of the Uyghur community, and today we are deeply concerned that they're trying to eliminate them as a people. 
were particularly concerned about the crimes being committed against women, a community that all too often throughout history has not had the requisite attention paid towards them as victims of genocide. We also know that perpetrators will go to extreme lengths to hide and deny the nature of their crimes. The Chinese government has been exemplary in this effort, restricting access to the vast network of detention centers and prisons, and to the millions of people whose lives they are persecuting. Information has gotten out, and as we see even with the findings today of the Uyghur Tribunal, it's quite clear that the gravity of these crimes are something that we need to reckon with and respond to. The world cannot say that they did not know in real time that crimes were occurring. The information is damning, and our goal is to help inform a conversation about what can be done to halt and prevent these crimes. We do so informed by recognition that the Genocide Convention from a legal perspective, sadly, does not define what the prevention obligations are. Our goal is to try to help unpack what that means, and we go into quite a lot of depth within the report to define what the duty to prevent is and to outline what some of the policy options could be. And I'll just kind of conclude just by touching on a few because I know that others will, will talk about this as well. And I will just state, uh, as a Canadian working in the US, I, I do believe that Canada has a very unique and critical role to play in advancing these policy recommendations. Some very simple ones, as we work to try to encourage and ensure that the Chinese government halts the commission of their crimes, is to dedicate resources to the collection and analysis of information regarding ongoing atrocity crimes and the risk of future mass atrocities, including information on changes in birth rates, review specific actions that follow from a determination of genocide or crimes against humanity. It's not enough to just say the words and invoke the language of genocide. You have to develop a comprehensive policy to prevent and protect associated with that. It should be a whole of government effort. Canada has notably considerable expertise in one particular area. That is international criminal justice. When we think of the Norwegians, we think of mediation. When I think of Canada's expertise, I think around the area of criminal justice. Canadians are in many of the international tribunals. They've been leading the cause in trying to create the legal frameworks that are used to uh, hold perpetrators accountable for these crimes. And I do think that it's really important for Canada to be at the fore of the creation of something like an independent impartial investigation, a mechanism to collect, preserve and analyze evidence really concrete measure that many of us on this panel have been raising for years is for Canada to create an ambassador, an envoy for international criminal justice to lead those efforts, to serve as a focal point for the types of crimes happening and ensure that Canada is working with like-minded partners to advance a prevention strategy. It's also important to continue to explore how to impose deterrent measures such as additional sanctions and import restrictions. Okay, and I know Bob will probably speak more, um, including about the, the use of forced labor, but companies need to do their due diligence and ensure that they're not aiding and abetting the commission of these crimes. Doing so can have legal and reputational consequences. Consumers can start asking questions about what are the crimes that the Uyghurs are experiencing and about where the products they purchase come from. And we can also see some creativity in the business sector. There's an emerging tension between the climate change and human rights community. We've seen that, for example, in the United States over the reliance on Chinese manufacturers of polysilicon for solar panels. It's a little bit ironic. Uh, one of the reasons why there is such a reliance on China is because of the heavy infusion of the Chinese government subsidies to rapidly build up the solar industry. 
their reliance on cheap coal power plants and critically their reliance on weaker slave labor. Canada could be at the forefront for creating ethical human rights informed approaches to climate change solutions, but that's gonna require considerable government support for both agendas, climate and human rights and putting them at the core of our future national security interests and the values that we as Canadians hold dearly. Can talk a little bit more in the discussion around some of the developments, especially here in the US in regards to the Forced Labor Act that puts a rebuttable presumption that anything produced in Xinjiang was used by forced labor, something like that could be useful in the Canadian context. And of course, just to kind of conclude, the weaker community has asked numerous times for Canada to also provide protection to weaker communities that have fled China. And most recently, I know that Dolkin Issa from the World Weaker Congress raised those issues in his visit to Canada two weeks ago. Thank you so much, Kyle, for that opportunity. Thank you, uh, Naomi, for that um, very detailed overview and ideas about what Canada could do. Um, so we know the Canadian Parliament declared what's happening to the Uyghurs as a genocide, but the reaction by um, the government has not been as strong as some would like. Um, I would now, though, would like to, um, I'm glad that uh, our, our colleague Erwin Collar has joined us. Erwin, you're going to be this, uh, the third speaker, so we're going to move to the second one um, right now. We'd like to ask Nursaman, um, who's living abroad, she's not in China, obviously, uh, but to talk about the experience of her family, because um, very often there are there's denialism online. Um, we've heard from Naomi that the Chinese government goes to great lengths to um, prevent any discussion of this. Even my colleagues and I, we had Dolkanisa visit Montreal a few years ago and the Chinese Consul General of Montreal uh, put pressure on the mayor of Montreal to stop our event at a university. So this is happening, this is not make-believe. So I'd like to ask Nursaman to please tell us about your story. Um, thank you, Nursaman. Thank you very much for inviting me here and thank you very much for the audience. And uh, I, my name is Nursman, I am an Uyghur. And uh, today I'm going to uh, talk about how the Chinese government destroyed millions of innocent life and millions of family by sharing my own story. And uh, here I want to show my family photo and uh, introduce my uh, family members. This is my father, Abdurashid Tohti. He's 55 years old and he's a retired government worker. And she's my mother, Tajgul Qadir, 52 years old. Uh, she used to manage our floor factory. And after 2012, she starts to enjoy her retirement and taking care of the grandchildren. And this is my younger brother, uh, 30 years old. And this is my elder brother, 35 uh, years old. And my two brothers uh, together, they are running auto spare part business in Kashgar. And uh, like all of my family members don't have any criminal record in the past and it, they don't have any conflict with the government. And in contrast, uh, most of the time, the government always praise our family just because uh, me and my sister had uh, studied the best university in China and they always praise my parents uh, for support our education but unfortunately like in 2017 I lost contact with my family back home and uh, like at the beginning I was just wait because like in 2009 almost a year the international phone calls was forbidden 
I will think something happened and that's why my family members didn't pick up my phone. But after several months, I start to uh, see people start to searching their family members, start to talk about the concentration camps. Then I start to worry and I tried every way, way, but still cannot get any kind of information until 2018 in February, I received a simple message and it's written that uh, there is no one in your home and that means that all of my family members are in the concentration camps that i have keep hearing every day from the other uyghurs in diaspora uh, then i keep contact with the chinese embassy in turkey and i also writing to the journalist and uh, until 2020 i didn't get any information in June 15th, 15th of June 2020, the, after too many pressure, the Chinese embassy in Ankara, they called me and they told me that uh, my father was, uh, he. they said my father uh, arrested in 2017 and sentenced 15 years, 11 months. And my mother sentenced 13 years and my younger brother sentenced uh, 15 years, 11 months, and my elder brother sentenced seven years. When I asked about the, the, what is the reason and where are they and when they arrested and uh, like what is the excuse and they asked me to go back and uh, hire a lawyer, then I can learn uh, their whereabouts and uh, the what is the charge and they didn't give me any further information and uh, but uh, i found that the chinese embassy in ankara lying me uh, because i keep too much pressure to them because i talk on social media and i also contact with the political parties in 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 turkey and uh, give testimony in their meetings so they give me this kind of information because uh, like uh, I was in uh, with my contact back home. I got a, a paper that's informed me that my father was transferred, sent to the prison in 2019. But the Chinese embassy in Ankara, they said they my father was arrested and sending to the prison in 2019. 17 and uh, there is a two-year period so so i think the uh, the chinese government arrested all of my family members in 2017 to the concentration camps then after the international community put too much pressure they start to so legalize their uh, crime and just with a trumped up crime sending so many uyghurs to the prison in 2019 that's that uh, my my thoughts is like my all of my family members staying in the concentration camps in until 2019 then they sentenced so many years with the trumped up crimes and that, that that's not like they never committed and so if i keep ask it i keep uh, ask the proof but until now i didn't get any reply from the chinese embassy and i also uh, with my lawyer i took my family case to the 
UN uh, Human Rights Court, but still the Chin there is no any reply from the Chinese government. And uh, before uh, four months ago, with the help of the ITV news journalist, I had a chance to see my home. Uh, but unfortunately, the sad truth proved again that there is still no one in our home and the door locked outside and my beautiful house as you see here this is a, such a beautiful home with a lot of flowers and plants it became a desert place and it's like at the beginning i i barely can't recognize it and uh, at the time i would think that in the in the four years my home turned it into a desert and what happened to my parents and the brothers because they are in the concentration camps and uh, we keep hearing from the camp survivors that uh, the torture and the, the the bad physical conditions and the, like the rape, the slave labor, everything happened in the camps. We kind of know from the mouths of the camp survivors, and all of my family members are living in 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 the camps, and it's really hard for me to uh, like go to bed and sleep and it's really hard for me to eat. I, I'm sure all the Uyghurs living outside and have family members in the concentration camps, they are living the same uh, miserable life like me. And here today, uh, while sharing my family members story, I really want I really ask, I really want to ask a favor. You from have to watch otherwise you press the wrong thing. It's Yeah, like, uh, because I feel so weak and I tried a lot and uh, still there is no change. I still cannot hear their voice. As a daughter, as a sister, I what I want is want to see them. I just want to hear their voice. I just want to have a simple dinner with them. But unfortunately, with the, with the genocide policy of the Chinese regime, I even can't hear their voice. I even can't know if they are alive or not. Today, I want to ask help for the people around the world to help us and stop this ongoing Uyghur genocide. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nursaman, for, for telling us about um, your, your family's problems, but it shows a systemic uh, issue of people being locked up from one ethnic group and religious group, and it's, it's, we're deeply sorry and um, can only imagine what you're going through and your family is going through. Um, I would now, I know we have Erwin Kotler with us, um, um, although he's having some technical difficulties. Um, I'm going to maybe just see if we can... Erwin, can you hear us? Are you able to join? The loudest. We can hear Erwin but he cannot join us. So what I might do as we try to figure out the technical problem that Erwin is having, I might uh, now perhaps because of that, um, Robert Fight from the Globe Mail, who's been doing some amazing work, um, investigative journalism and reporting on a Canadian angle to this story, actually many Canadian angles because the China-Canada um, relationship has been uh, at the forefront of center with the two Michaels being kidnapped and recently released after almost three years. 
but also a whole set of um, other issues related to the Canadian economy and Canadian relations with the Chinese government. So, Robert, I'd like to hand the floor to you. Tell us a bit about some of the, the work you've been doing and, and your general views as a journalist uh, covering these stories. Well, I'd like to put uh, things in perspective and so that people have a better idea why it seems that the Liberal government uh, is so soft and so un- and so silent and so unwilling to uh, join other countries to criticize China. And it, you know, really starts with this, people have to understand that there is, within the Liberal Party, a very strong uh, pro-China group led by Jean Gretchen and Eddie Goldenbergs of the world, uh, who uh, did the China uh, policy, uh, reapproachment policy uh, after Tiananmen Square, which was basically let's trade with China and turn a blind eye to human rights abuses. There is also a very strong uh, pro-trade, let's ignore human rights uh, in the Canadian business community, exemplified by the Canada-China business community led by Power Corporation, but in other parts of the business community as well. And there is a a lot of voices in the academic community who also uh, are still wedded to this idea uh, that uh, that Canada's future lies with with China, uh, ignoring uh, the rise of President Xi Jinping, the strike nationalism, the territorial claims, and the terrible human rights abuses. Whether it's against Uyghurs, the crackdown in uh, Hong Kong of the democracy and and the, and the throwing of dissidents in jail, and of course the uh, very serious military threats against Taiwan. And, you know, I'm going to go back a little. Just when they first came into power, one of the first governments, uh, the Liberal Government's Act, was to overturn a CSIS recommendation to deny uh, the sale of a laser weapons company in Montreal to Chinese interest. Uh, they they overrode that. And then they another example was they were going to approve Uh, a a major Chinese state-owned construction company taking over of Acon, which is Canada's second largest construction company, but had been involved in building of the Gordie Howe Bridge in military bases, in our nuclear industries, in our electrical industries. So they had a lot of information. And uh, they were going to approve that. And we kept writing about it and kept writing about it. I remember coming back on a plane ride from Davos and one of the Prime Minister's senior advisors saying, why are you guys on this, uh, uh, this crusade? I said, well, just do a do a, a national security, uh, a serious national security review. If there's nothing wrong with it, there's nothing wrong with it. Our coverage in, and then the the uh, opposition uh, efforts in the House of Commons forced that national security review, and uh, you know the deal was turned down. But they, otherwise, it would have been approved. Look at how what they've done in terms of uh, our envoys to China. We've had very good envoys from career civil servants. What did the Trudeau government do when uh, Guy Saint-Jacques left uh, a real serious, thoughtful man on China and who has been a strong voice in in urging the the Canadian government to take a different tack? They brought in, they sent in uh, liberal, uh, former cabinet minister, John McCallum, uh, who uh, is part of the Gretchen pro-China camp. He, when he was a member of parliament, not in cabinet, but a member of parliament, he'd taken $73,000 and free trips from China. And when McCallum got in trouble after the, the Michaels were uh, arrested, basically taking the position of Meng Wanzhou, um, he ended up being fired. And who did they send into China? They sent in 
Dominic Barton, the former global managing partner of McKinsey and Company, whose, whose company has great deal of interest in China. Uh, this is, I mean, they held when Mr. Um, Barton was, was global managing editor, they actually held a retreat not too far from where a million Uyghurs are in concentration camps. That gives you a sense of how the Trudeau government views China. It only views China from the point of an economic uh, opportunities and not from the, the greater threat I think China is. And let's go to the Uyghurs. Now, Parliament, uh, I'm, I will say proudly, voted uh, uh, to uh, label uh, genocide in, uh, in um, what is happening to the Uyghur people. A million people in concentration camps, women, women being sterilized, forced evacuation to other labor camps and moving in Hans to, to repopulate uh, the Uyghur area uh, in Xinjiang. Just what the, a similar thing which they've done, as you know, in, in uh, Tibet. Um, but our, what did our government do? They, they did not vote. And, you know, it's an appalling, to me anyway, appalling cowardly act upon the, the cabinet that they would stay silent on such a fundamental uh, issue of human rights. Uh, we've been all through this movie before. We've seen this in the 1930s, and we know what the end result was. Uh, a Holocaust against uh, not just Jews, but gays and, uh, and Slavics and, and, uh, and, and other people uh, by the Germans. And I'm not saying that um, a Holocaust is happening yet, but genocide is. And this is not a time for Canada uh, to be silent. Um, so uh, what concerns me um, about this is that um, I'm, I'm, well, just let's go, let's, let's look at what the, the uh, Olympic boycott. We were the last country, the last G, uh, member of the five uh, eyes countries to, to come out and say that Canada is going to join this boycott. Uh, for uh, years, um, we have been asking um, the government to have a China policy, and they still haven't got a China policy. They're now... Uh, turn it over to a group of bureaucrats to have a look at an Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, strategy, which they'll put China in. And the Americans are very upset with this. Other allies are upset with this because, um, you know, we, if we're going to be successful in standing up to China, we have to do this in concert with our biggest allies, the United States. And there is a bipartisan consensus in the United States that, um, that China is a growing menace to the world and that Western democracies uh, need to stand together. And while Canada will stand together uh, with our, uh, uh, with our other, with the United States and the UK and Australia, and it's usually very back at the room so you can hardly see their, uh, their head. Uh, and it's very disconcerting to me as a Canadian um, that our Canadian government uh, is not willing to be stronger on the issue, including the whole issue of uh, products that are coming into this country from forced Uyghur labor. There's only been uh, one a case where uh, they have uh, stopped a product from coming in. And the Uyghur community in this country know that our Costco's and uh, all of our stores are full of um, products that are made from forced labor. The government has um, 
even though there's legislation on this, the government has not uh, stepped up to say we really want our uh, our uh, federal officials, border people to really crack down on this. And again, it's just more cowardice on the part of this government. And um, so uh, we, as a, a certain mean, and in the journalism community are going to continue to um, report on the lack of Canadian government action, uh, because we do believe that a vibrant media that holds a tent, highlights this and shines a light on it, will will get action. Slowly, we are, uh, and and on that introduction, um, I want to turn it over to Erwin uh, Codler, who has been one of the most articulate voices on almost all issues of human rights, but he's been particularly strong on the plight of the Uyghur people. And we're very grateful to have him in this country speaking up on these issues. So Irwin, um, if we could put Irwin on large screen, he's had some Irwin, the floor is yours. Thank you. I, I, I regret that I haven't been able to hear thus far what has been said, though I've seen everyone. I do hope you can uh, hear me as I try to share my remarks with you. And may I begin by expressing appreciation to the uh, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum at the Simon Scottett Center, directed by Naomi Kikoler, for their exemplary leadership in the matter of mass atrocity prevention, and for this masterful report on the Chinese government's assault on the Uyghurs titled revealingly and appropriately enough to make us slowly disappear. Indeed, as I read the report, uh, a chilling image came back to me of about 18 months ago, a graphic video then, which showed Uyghur men blindfolded, shaven, shackled, being herded onto trains to concentration camps. I make no analogies and never do with regard to the Holocaust. But these images were chillingly reminiscent and indeed reminded me of the words of uh, Elie Wiesel. And I recall these words because at the time I saw this image and was reminded of these words, I was about to appear to testify before the Foreign Affairs Subcommittee of the Canadian Parliament some 18 months ago which was looking into the question of the mass atrocities of the Uyghurs. And I was reminded of Elie Wiesel's words against the backdrop of that chilling image, that the dangers of silence in the face of evil, that indifference always means coming down on the side of the victimizer, never on the side of the victim. And so what makes the Holocaust and the genocides that followed so unspeakable are not only the horrors of the genocides themselves. What makes them so unspeakable is that they were preventable. Whether we speak of the genocide of the Tutsis in Rwanda or Srebrenica or Darfur or Myanmar, they were known and they were preventable. And so now with the Uyghurs, we know and we cannot say any longer we do not know. We know and we must act. These mass atrocities, as I said then to the committee 18 months ago, and documented in a report by, put, out, put out by the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and as I 
read the chilling, chilling report of the Holocaust Museum's about slowly disappearing. It recalled for me that these max atrocities, in fact, constitute acts of genocide under the Genocide Convention. Very briefly, the mass internment of over 1 million men, women, and children as young as 13 years of age, the largest mass detention of a minority since the Holocaust with survivors themselves testifying to forced enslavement, torture, rape, disappearances, and murder. Massive, inhumane, and increasing coercive population controls. Whether we speak about coercive sterilization, or coercive and forced implantation of IUDs, or coercive abortions, the result has been that, and I give just one example, that between 2015 and 2018, population growth in Uyghur areas fell by 84%. Number three, as I reported then, the forcible separation of more than a half a million Uyghur children from their families, from their parents. That was 18 months ago. As the Holocaust Memorial Museum's report demonstrates, we are now closer to 900,000 children being separated from their families. Number four, state orchestrated incitement to genocide. Referring to the Uyghurs as tumors that must be eradicated, I can go on, but as we learned and as the Supreme Court told us so tellingly and compellingly that the Holocaust did not begin with words. It began, the Holocaust did not begin with the industrial deaths and killing. It began, as the Supreme Court put it, with words. These are the catastrophic effects of racism. These are the chilling facts of history. The last two constituent mass atrocity features constitutive of genocide include, and Yona Diamond reported on this in our Raoul Wallenberg Center's report, the first ever massively technologically programmed and implemented mass surveillance a genocide. And finally, we have the, the targeting, the state-sanctioned assaults on the religion, the culture, the language, the identity of the Uyghurs, indeed intending to eradicate their heritage and the like. So the question becomes, what can we do? And I'll close with a series of one-liners, because the important thing at this point is for the community of nations, and I include Canada, to not only heed the warnings, to not only respond to the evidence, but to act. Number one, to reaffirm and call upon all states that they must heed our legal obligations, our binding legal obligations to prevent and to halt genocide, as well as the related responsibility of the international community to protect victims of genocide and crimes against humanity. Number two, the Chinese government must be called upon and be held accountable to cease and desist from its ongoing mass atrocities targeting uh, the Uyghurs, which constitute, at the very least, crimes against humanity, if not also acts of genocide. Number three, these crimes against humanity 
perpetrated by the Chinese authorities give rise to the international responsibility to protect doctrine, something which the Martin government, of which I was a member in 2005, initiated and which received unanimous adoption and assent at the time we now must implement and act upon that R2P doctrine. Number four, all this warrants the establishment of an international and independent investigative mechanism that is unfettered in its inquiry so that it can not only investigate but document and provide the evidence of these mass atrocities through on-site investigation. Number five, the Chinese authorities must guarantee unfettered and independent access to these international investigative mechanisms so that the necessary investigation and documentation can be carried out. Number six, we need to enhance coordinated Magnitsky sanctions. The European Union has now adopted Magnitsky sanctions. Australia last week adopted Magnitsky sanctions. We can now have a global coordinated effort in that uh, regard. Number seven, supply chains. We must protect against here the importation of the produce of slave labor at the same time as we protect against the export of those technologically related devices that contribute to the surveillance and ongoing mass atrocities. We have to fast track and set up a specific fast tracking mechanism for immigrants, for Uyghur immigrants and refugees. Our different respective countries must themselves immigrate, implement these fast track mechanisms. And at the same time, we have to protect our Uyghur communities in Canada and elsewhere from transnational repression that the Chinese authorities are engaging in as documented, among others, by Freedom House. I will close with this words with which I began, that, and the words of Elie Wiesel, that silence in the face of such mass atrocities is effectively complicity with these mass atrocities. We must not only heed the evidence as presented so compellingly in these Holocaust Museum's report, not only heed the evidence, not only take note of the mass atrocities that not only constitute crimes against humanity as so effectively documented, but arguably also acts of genocide, but not but understand and act upon our international legal obligations to prevent this ongoing genocide, to ensure that it comes to a halt, and that we institute all the necessary measures for that purpose. The diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games, which I welcome, these will be once again the Games of shame as they were in 1936. I understand the action taken for the sake of the athletes, but this is only one, one action. And of those that I have shared with you and others at time doesn't 
permit me to enter into, we need a collective, concerted community of democracies action for the prevention and the halting of these crimes against humanity and acts of genocide. Thank you. Thank you, Erwin. Uh, thank you for that deep discussion, bringing about the responsibility to protect, which seems to have fallen off um, uh, the lips of our foreign policy experts. No one talks about it anymore, although it came about from Canada, and there is global agreement on that. Um, and I also want to thank Erwin for uh, talking about transnational repression. Um, we know that um, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong uh, activists, and others are, are facing persecution, both offline and online, and here in Canada as well. And Facebook just last fall um, revealed coordinated campaigns um, in which um, Chinese uh, online actors were targeting Uyghurs around the world, including in Canada. So it's, it's a real problem, and I thank Erwin for bringing that up. So those who are following, we have about 25 minutes left. Um, so please, now we're going to move to the Q&A. Um, I have a few that I can ask our different guests, but... It's always better if you can. Uh, we want this to be participative and, and for all Canadians and those following from around the world to ask some questions. Um, but I have one that's coming coming up and I'd like to put it on the screen. Um, and it's a Twitter question. It's coming from online. It says, um, how should Canada collaborate with other countries to have a concrete foreign policy on this? Um, what would a forceful China policy look like? Um, not sure who in our group would like to talk about this. Maybe Naomi, um, uh, maybe ask you, because you're seeing the U.S. kind of bring on other allies. The Democracy Summit, Biden's Democracy Summit is taking place today in, um, in the U.S. And there is an angle about, about China and the Uyghurs in there. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about what countries could do together, because um, you also have a long-term experience working at the U.N., um, when you were with the Global Center for R2P and working at the multilateral level as well. So I'd like to maybe pass the floor to you and, and, um, and hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Kyle. And, and it's, a, it's a great question. I think that um, actually Erwin touched on a, a number of key points that are important to reiterate in this regard. And I think it's a question of, you know, what are you seeking to do? Ideally, you're trying to get a change in behavior from the Chinese government. And one of the challenges is trying to then work backwards and understand what are the leverage points that we have. And I think each of the speakers have spoken to a few of them. Um, and it's notable just to emphasize that everyone has, uh, for the most part, also talked about the importance of the, the business sector or the private sector in this regard, given just how closely related um, and how intertwined so many of our foreign policy and economic um, interests are with, with China. And I know that that in conversation with certain European governments this week has been influencing some of their thoughts, even around whether or not they participate, for example, in a uh, diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, because it's important to note that even countries like Germany, their major trading partner, their top trading partner is China. So if we think just about kind of what are some of the options, Erwin talked about the Magnitsky um, sanctions and kind of the need for there to be a more coordinated international approach towards using levers like sanctions in this particular regard of individuals, but also of entities that are believed to be playing a role in helping to aid and abet the commission of genocide and crimes against humanity. In the U.S. right now, there's legislation moving forward that I think is quite creative and it would be good to see replicated elsewhere 
that essentially puts a re rebuttable presumption on anyone who's doing business activity within uh, Xinjiang looking at the issue of forced labor. So essentially what it means is that anything that's being produced there uh, is perceived to have been produced as a result of the use of forced labor, which we know is unfortunately widespread. And uh, I think that's something where, and of course there's then the consequences are that there are sanctions and there are penalties associated for uh, US businesses that are, are doing uh, that type of, of business. Having something that's more synced up globally in that regard is one way to, again, actually try to use one of the few levers that are clearly kind of present. We also know that China goes to great lengths to try to shield itself from criticism. Uh, it has been incredibly active within the UN, UN Human Rights Council, the UN General Assembly, in trying to dissuade governments from supporting any statements of condemnation. Of course, they'll block anything that happens within the Security Council, but it's been fascinating just to see how much they want to shield themselves from criticism in other fora as well. So the efforts by the Canadian governments and others to raise issues, um, or as, as Erwin and I noted, push for an international independent um, investigative mechanism, a triple IM, to actually do documentation of the crimes being committed. That's one way that we hope to be able to not just perhaps deter future crimes, but also pave the way for future accountability uh, measures, ideally so that individuals are held responsible for the crimes that they've played a role in committing. But also a mechanism like that can be quite useful if, for example, uh, individual countries were to look carefully at um, Chinese government officials or business entities that are implicated in the commission of these crimes traveling to their countries, uh, the possibility for those individuals to be arrested, detained, possibly charged for their crimes. There needs to be much more of a focus on innovative avenues for accountability and use that as a possible way to try to, to deter. And if anything, the importance of it also is just to set a clear historical record and articulate what crimes have happened. So those are two kind of examples. Uh, but of course, you know, the reality is that we're talking about uh, a leading state that has been able to use the UN Security Council to shield, shield not just itself, but shield other governments that have been committing these crimes. I think what's often forgotten, and I really appreciate Robert's comments on this, is that China has been committing crimes against humanity, against its own population for decades. If you even just look at the actions against women, including Han women, and the use of rampant forced sterilization in that regard, treatment of other minority communities. But they've also been complicit and enabled the commission of crimes elsewhere, be that, for example, crimes that have been perpetrated in Burma, where they've shielded the Tatmadaw the Burmese government. So we have to just really understand that um, when we talk about China, and as we, as Robert said, explore what are our, our economic interests there, again, we're talking about how we do business with a genocidal state and with a state that is comfortable seeing these crimes uh, committed elsewhere. And uh, I think we've just been a little too lax as an international community to kind of, you know, see them engage on UN peacekeeping, see them engage and put key staff members in senior positions within the UN system, thinking that that's somehow moving them more into the realm of, of democratic states, human rights friendly states, yet all of their actions domestically and many of their actions abroad suggest that they continue to be a pariah state and they continue to also be a state uh, that's incredibly extractive in their, their business relations. I think Canadian companies have seen that, American companies have seen that, but also any country that is currently involved in the Belt and Road Initiative understands how punitive some of the investments the Chinese government makes in their country can be um, 
in the in the long term. So we have to just think a little bit more creatively and have a much more multi-pronged strategy that requires not just governments having a seat at the table to develop this prevention strategy, but really actually bringing the private sector or civil society. Uh, as Robert noted, the, the role of the press is really critical in continuing to put a spotlight and framing this issue with a more accurate lens. Thank you, Naomi. Um, so I, I'm, I would like to go to Robert next and then to Erwin and then to our other guest. Um, Robert, um, there were some interesting segues that Naomi said. You talked about the economic interest of Canada and, and a, not really a, a need to be forceful uh, with China. Um, and there's, but there's another thing happening, and, and, I, I, and, and um, Naomi brought this up. It's about China's business interests. And we've seen quite a few really large Chinese companies, Huawei, iFlyTech, um, um, Tencent, these major uh, tech companies that have been found to have been engaged in the surveillance of Uyghurs. And they're trying to get into the Canadian market. Um, and I'm wondering, as a journalist, um, is this something that is that that you've covered in your work or, or how difficult it is as a journalist to uncover what these companies are doing in the Canadian context? Well, they are in the Canadian uh, market. Um, HK Vision, a lot of these companies are already here. Um, and uh, the, the government, um, has has done little to um, go after them. Um, we now, for example, China Mobile, for example, is now uh, going to be kicked out. We'll we'll finally sometime before Christmas, uh, probably in Christmas Eve, they'll announce that Huawei um, won't um, will will not be able to provide uh, its 5G equipment. Uh, it's, it's amazing that they they have taken so long to do this. I mean, all of our other countries around the world have done so. Uh, the one thing I wanted to raise, um, because I think it's really important about Chinese influence in Western countries. Yes, their companies come in. Basically, they come in and they buy companies and they steal the technology. Um, that's their that, or they come in to get resource minerals that they need to fuel their own industries back home. But there is a complicity here on on the part of many members of the Canadian establishment who fill their pockets with. Uh, money by these companies. And what, what the United States and Australia have done is set up a foreign influence uh, agent registry, which would mean that the Canadian uh, former, usually they're former politicians um, who uh, were, are working in law firms or lobbying firms or whatnot, would have to register as an agent of the of a, of a Chinese state-owned company or Chinese government or whatever, however it's done, so that we in the Canadian public would have a better idea of who's shilling for uh, China and hold those people to account, uh, not only for their actions in trying to um, promote the business interest of, of Chinese companies, but promote the business interest of Chinese companies who were involved in genocide, who are involved in the crackdown in in in, um, in uh, Hong Kong? Uh, it, it's a very important piece of legislation, and the Chinese government is so interested in not having us do that. During the election campaign, they mounted a uh, social media to, uh, within the uh, successful social media effort within the uh, Chinese community in Vancouver and in in the Markham area. And three conservative MPs who had been longtime members of parliament in those communities lost to liberals. So that's an important issue. This government probably won't be able, won't do it because uh, they're afraid to take on China. But that's something that other countries have done. So the United States and Australia 
and I hope that we can move in that direction ourselves. Thank you, Robert. I'm now going to put Erwin on the screen. Erwin um, would like to uh, make some comments. Yes, I think what we need to do, what the community of democracies uh, need to do is to sound the alarm on the scale, the scope, the severity of the Chinese government's assault on what we call the uh, rules-based international order. It's not only the mass atrocities targeting the Uyghurs, which I say amount to crimes against humanity and genocide. It's also they're targeting not only the democracy movement in Hong Kong, but democracy itself in Hong Kong. It's their attempt, in their own words, to eradicate uh, the Falun Gong through the persecution and prosecution of the Falun Gong. It's the menacing of Taiwan. It's the repression of Tibet. It's the targeting of what Xi Jinping has called the five poisons. And what is not as well known is that China imprisons more journalists than any other country in the world today and the lawyers who would defend them. Yet another primary assault on the democratic order. And here too, we need to mobilize the Media Freedom Coalition established two and a half years ago uh, for that uh, purpose to hold them uh, accountable. I would also say that uh, we need to take note of and enhance the effectiveness of the work because the work is effective, but here we need to take note of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, uh, of which I'm the Canadian co-chair. I say this because it's 18 months since it was founded and it has sounded the alarm on these five poisons. It has led action to be taken on these. As we speak, it has recommended a, num a number of other actions such as ensuring that uh, Interpol is held accountable and does not become a shield for uh, the Chinese authorities in, in that uh, regard. To ensure also the work that they've done to guard against any extradition of Uyghurs from many of our countries back to uh, China for where they will face torture and imprisonment. In a word, what we had before the Interparliamentary Alliance on China was China bullying the democracies one by one. Jap Japan, Australia, Canada in an asymmetrical and bullying economic relationship. What the Interparliamentary Alliance has done, and we now have uh, hundreds and hundreds of parliamentarians from some 25 uh, democracies. What it has done, it has challenged and reversed that asymmetrical relationship. And that has helped to mobilize for the imposition of Magnitsky sanctions and the like. And so I'll conclude by saying that what we need now is an intergovernmental alliance that parallels that interparliamentary alliance that hopefully can emerge from the uh, U.S. summit on democracies that is being held as we meet, because that concerted intergovernmental alliance can dramatically change that asymmetrical relationship where China has been using, as I say, its economic leverage for bullying purposes. We can not only reverse that economically, but we can do so uh, politically, legally, and bring about justice for the victims and accountability for the Chinese government's human rights violators. Thank you, Erwin. Um, I, I'm hopeful that the Democracy Summit will result in, in a strengthening alliance, um, intergovernmental alliance against China's bullying 
Um, and it's funny to see that the Chinese and Russian ambassadors to uh, to the U.S. wrote an op-ed piece um, last week in the National Interest, um, basically saying America is not really a democracy. They are, and America has no right to define democracy. It was quite hilarious. Um, I'd like to to turn now. There's a there's a Facebook question for Nursaman. Um, so I'm going to put it on the screen, Nursaman. If we could, um, oh sorry, that's the wrong one. Um, oh, here it is. Sorry. So Nursaman, uh, there's a question that says. Uh, how safe is it to be a Uyghur abroad? Do they fear arrest and transfer to China as happened to Hussein Man Salil? The floor is yours. Yes, yes. Uh, like as we, before, before the 2017, the most of the people living abroad, they are just uh, the students and they choose to live in another country or they are just a businessman. But after 2017, we all forced to uh, join the politics because uh, our family members arrested, innocent friends arrested. So when it after that, most of the people felt unsafe because sometimes we receive uh, threats from the police in China. Sometimes uh, there is a threat uh, where the country we are living in. And uh, there is also extradition law in some countries, and they have uh, some examples to sending Uyghurs back to China. So, like uh, in every country, the Uyghurs most most per the active uh, people like us, like we are protesting everywhere, and we are raising our voice, and we are pressuring the government to take action for these kind of Uyghurs living every countries uh, we are like can say we are not feel safe but uh, but but there is a reality that we don't afraid because we lost everything there is nothing we can lost so we don't afraid but the threat does exist thank you thank you uh, nurse man for um, for telling us about the personal experience of Uyghurs. We've heard stories of forced return. There was recently a, a Uyghur who was going to be deported from Serbia this week. An activist uh, engaged to, to prevent that, um, that uh, refoul, uh, the principle against refoulement, non-refoulement. Um, but we're very concerned about Uyghurs living outside of China and, and the pressure they face. Um, we have about eight minutes left. Um, so we have a few interesting questions in here, um, and I'm going to perhaps give me two seconds to find one. Oh yeah, there, there, here's there's a there's a, a general uh, question where here I'm going to pull it up. So I'm not sure who feels comfortable in answering this, but Laszlo Sarkani says. China seems to be emboldened to attempt to silence dissent even abroad and silence the issues of the genocide being committed involving the Uyghurs abroad, including here in Canada. What are some of the mechanics and strategies which may help to counteract this? It seems to be a case that Canada's sovereignty is directly being challenged via these actions. Um, who would like to comment on that um, about this foreign interference? Uh, what could be a pushback? Well, I just, I'll, I'll, ha I'll have a quick answer to this and then other people can, can speak. Uh, one of the good things that's happened is that in a minority parliament uh, over the liberal, liberal objections, 
the uh, opposition parties have set up a Canada-China committee, which has proved to be an enormously helpful form in uh, being able to discuss um, Chinese activities in this country, uh, what Canada should be doing to protect uh, people of uh, Tibetan, uh, Uyghur, or uh, you know, Ch Chinese uh, pro, uh, Chinese Canadians who, who are uh, a part of Hong Kong uh, and are fighting for democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, the whole issue of having members of parliament being able to discuss and call witnesses has been enormously helpful for, for me as a journalist, but I think for the, for public dialogue as a whole. And again, you know, one of the things that I keep saying and the opposition parties have been pushing is please, we need a foreign agent influence uh, registry so that we can know uh, who is um, the real voices lobbying for Chinese influence in this country. Thank you, Robert. Uh, very important points, and and I've given testimony to that committee, and I know um, we need to support it more, and and for Canadians to to hear from experts about what is going on. Um, I, I have a question for Irwin. I'm not sure if Irwin will be able to hear this, but I'm going to put it up. Question to Irwin about Uyghur Tribunal in London's decision. Irwin, can someone put Irwin on the screen? I, I hear uh, the reference to the Uyghur uh, tribunal. I'm not sure what the the question is. Okay, Erwin, um, we will, uh, sorry, the question was just to have the general understanding of what that was, uh, whether it was useful or not. But maybe maybe I'll do this. We have a few oh, minutes. I can answer that part, actually. Um, I think it is not only uh, useful because it uh, has heard uh, witness testimony and received uh, massive documentary evidence so that uh, its uh, findings of fact and uh, conclusions of law are compellingly important and relevant and can be acted upon. This is an enormous uh, resource, as I said, both from an evidentiary point of view and from a legal uh, point of view to underpin what governments uh, can do. And I just want to, because I did manage to hear uh, Robert Fife's response, and I just want to second what he's saying, and uh, not only the importance of the Canada-China Committee, but also to activate our Foreign Affairs Committee, along with the Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on International uh, Human Rights, that they can, in fact, uh, re-engage and hold hearings, as they did 18 months ago, and get a sense now of the ongoing and increasing scale, scope, and severity of China's uh, massive assault on the rules-based uh, order. And that will then, uh, I would hope, uh, summon our responsibilities under the R2P doctrine, under the obligations, under the Genocide Convention, under international uh, treaties, so that we hold uh, the Chinese authorities accountable. And our respective ministries in the Canadian government are also relevant for that purpose, whether we speak about foreign affairs or, or justice and the like, each can engage in, as I say, uh, a collective challenge with respect to that assault on the rules-based order. Thank you, Erwin. So we're near the end. I would like to maybe just invite Naomi back for to make a closing comment just about how we can follow up Canadians, be it journalists, NGOs, academics, and government, 
can follow up on the momentum created by your report um, to, um, to continue putting pressure to try to help protect the Uyghurs. Thanks so much for that, Kyle. And I, I just want to just start by just recognizing that our report was only um, possible thanks to the remarkable support and partnership with many Uyghur organizations, Uyghurs who shared their horrific accounts and the work of remarkable organizations uh, like Irwin's. Irwin noted the report that Jonah and others um, worked on producing. I think that that bellies the point that there is so much ample information out there stating quite starkly what is happening. What we're not seeing is the corresponding level of attention. And what I fear is that many governments, including our own, will feel that the step in announcing an Olympic diplomatic boycott is sufficient right now to uh, address the current moment of attention, as you said, that there seems to be right now around the plight of the Uyghurs. The reality is that's barely scratching the surface of what is needed when we need to build a comprehensive strategy around prevention and protecting a community that as we sit here having this conversation today are imprisoned, detained, uh, being uh, physically assaulted. Uh, people like nursemen do not know where their loved ones are. They don't know if they're alive. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to kind of really urge with the, the US government when having conversations about how to think about this and with other governments is to recognize that what we're watching essentially is unfortunately possibly what the future of genocide looks like. And as I said at the outset, it may not be one defined by mass killing because the Chinese government knows, as do many governments, that when images of bodies piling up uh, happens, sometimes that does motivate action. Often it's far too, too little too late. But what the Chinese government is doing is essentially advancing through the use of some of the most um, troubling, disturbing, <laughs> dystopian uh, surveillance technology, uh, a way of committing genocide that evolves slowly. And what terrifies us is that we're seeing signs that they're exporting that technology to other governments. And whether those governments commit genocide or use it to commit other crimes or repress their populations, that's not something as, as Erwin noted that we as democracies and as rule abiding states can abide by. So really the urgency of the situation is not met just by an Olympic diplomatic boycott. And we really as Canadians need to be consistently pushing and engaging our government to demand more of their response uh, and to ensure also, and then this is just kind of some of the, the smaller things that we could be thinking about, but ensure that we're also being creative about how we engage in conversations about this issue just domestically. As Robert noted, there's a large uh, Chinese population within Canada, attitudes within the Han population, we have an opportunity to educate, to help people understand what is happening within the weaker community, to help through the diaspora, also inform what expectations are for Chinese behavior, uh, the, the, the behavior of the Chinese government. I think what's also important for us to just underscore is we're talking about the actions of the Chinese Communist Party, we're talking about their government, we're not talking about the Chinese people. Um, and so, you know, at this particular moment, the the creativity that's needed to be brought to think about what a comprehensive strategy looks like has to exist at multiple different levels, just starting even within our own communities at home in Canada and how we talk about this. And even as we think and we enter the holiday period, how we, through our actions, choose to uh, contribute to strengthening the, the Chinese government. I'm trying to find presence that, you know, involve products that are not made in China. There are different things that we can do through our own uh, behavioral change too that might in a small way uh, help 
and I guess, you know, just to close as, as I said at the beginning, you know, I just ask everyone who's watching this, especially as we mark uh, the kind of somber UN Genocide Prevention Day today, if this was 1936, when we knew of reports of the persecution of Jews, if this was 1941, 1944, you know, what would you do? How would you respond? And that's the question I think we just have to keep asking over and over and over again. We committed to never again, and we're in a moment where those words really matter. Naomi, thank you for those closing comments. Um, on behalf of MIGS and uh, my colleagues, uh, we're really pleased to have partnered with the Holocaust Memorial Museum and the Raw Wallenberg Center for Human Rights in organizing this event. And, and I'd just like to thank uh, Nursaman, Naomi, Irwin, and Robert. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and for joining us. And we look forward to future collaboration. Thank you.